0: All right, some scenarios for you. You're a Christian teenager, you're at school lunch with a group of friends, there's a discussion around you, and the question to you, pointed in front of all of these people is, uh, you don't really believe that Jesus is the only way, do you? How do you answer? Another scenario, you uh, and your spouse are barely talking to each other. The talking that you do is primarily fighting, but there's someone at work who listens and who touches your arm, and there's an opportunity, what do you do? Another scenario, you're a single adult, and loneliness is pressing in, and you have the possibility to satisfy that loneliness with someone who is cute and funny and godless What do you do? Another scenario. You have made a mess of your life. You've given yourself over and over to your appetites. You've destroyed relationships. It's your fault, and you know it's your fault. And you're wondering if you have a future with Jesus. The book of Judges answers all of these situations and so many more. Uh, Judges, at first glance, seems to be a difficult book. It it has a lot of violence. There's some gore. It seems confusing at times. Everything seems sort of upside down in the book of Judges. Uh, And it's tough to tell who's good, if anyone is good. Uh, And at first glance, God himself seems confusing. God, in the book of Judges, seems sometimes brutal and angry. Other times, he just seems entirely absent. So why should we study such a book? Why don't we just study something else with a little more cotton candy and a lot more hallelujahs and maybe that would get the job done for us? Well, the truth is Judges is so very 2017 America. The book of Judges is a contemporary book for us. It speaks to so many contemporary situations and at the end of it all... From this book, there emerges one hero, and that hero is God, the gracious deliverer of sinners like all of us. We need the God of the book of Judges. And so I'm glad that you are making plans already to rearrange your summer, summer travels to be here every Sunday. <laughs> there, I fix it. That's great. Every Sunday, you're with us through the rest of the school year and in the summer. Uh, we're going to be enjoying time with the Lord in this book. All right. If you'll take a time out with me, real quick, I'm going to kill Seuss. I'm going to kill this mic. And I'm going to go with this handheld, okay? Check, check. All right. No popping. We're good. All right. Good deal. Thanks for bearing with us through that. Now we can forget about it and move on. So. If we're going to study the book of Judges well, we have to understand the historical setting of it. The setting of the book of Judges is so significant to bearing the weight of the message of the book. And so, very quickly, let me give you a brief overview of what we've been through up to the point of the start of the book of Judges. To understand Judges right, it helps if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, God speaks... To this man named Abram, or we call him Abraham, and God gives him four promises in this first little conversation. God gives him a promise that uh, he's going to have a place. He's going to bring Abraham to a land to a place that he will show him second he promises Abraham that he will be a people he'll be made into a great nation and those people will be God's people third those people will have God's protection or God's presence I'll bless those who bless you curse those who curse you is what God told Abraham and then fourth they'll have a purpose God tells Abraham, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. This fourfold promise is really helpful in interpreting Old Testament texts. Uh, Israel is supposed to be God's people in God's place, fulfilling God's purpose for them under God's protection with God's presence. That's the promise. So when we get to the book of Joshua, just before the book of Judges, God's people under Joshua's leadership enter the promised land and they take possession of the promised land. And so finally, after a long and tumultuous history, at the end of the book of Judges, they are God's people in God's place for them, fulfilling God's purpose with God's protection. And then we step into the book of Judges and what should happen is the continuation of that blessing. It should be God's people continuing to settle the promised land and to advance in their love of the Lord and their obedience to the Lord. But that's not at all what happens. It takes a drastic turn and it goes south. It goes south very, very quickly. And so this book opens, when we begin reading in verse 1, it opens with a scene that seems to me like this it's it's as if you're standing next to a power tool and there's a guy with one finger missing who's going to tell you how important all the safety procedures are (laughs) the book of judges is a warning to the reader a repeated warning of our susceptibility towards sin But it's also a promise that God is gracious and he does not give up on his people. And so through this journey, it's going to be thick at times. But in all of it, we're going to see God faithful, good, and gracious to us. So my goal today as we begin our study in the book of Judges is that we would understand the nuclear potential of our sin and the remarkable grace of our God. We've got to be convinced of How treacherous the sinful ways are, but how good our God is to rescue us and forgive us. Now, we have a very long passage to read through this morning, and so we're going to divide and conquer, if that's all right with you. If we were just to start reading in verse 1 and go all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, eventually you would glaze over, your brains would just begin to leak out of your ear and we wouldn't accomplish what we want to accomplish this morning. So uh, I divide this passage up into three major sections, and we're going to just take it a section at a time and read what we need to read as we step into that phase of the sermon, okay? Uh, so I want to share with you three warnings from the book of Judges for those who walk with the Lord, and uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And as I read verses 1 through 26, I want you to look for hints of things that Israel gets right, and hints of things that Israel gets wrong. All right? Follow along with me as I read Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We, in turn, will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, uh, putting to rout the Canaanites and parasites, Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have, uh, have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev, and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Shishai, Ahamon, and Talmai. From there they advanced against the people living in Debir, uh, formerly called Kiriath-sephir. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath-sephir. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What can I do for you? She replied, Do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. Then Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the men of Judah to live among the people of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their brothers, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath. And they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. The men of Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you're treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. All right. Take a breath. Good job. It's a lot of names, a lot of geography, a lot of warfare, a bit of strangeness. There's a lot of things happening here. Uh, But I ask you to keep an eye out. What are the things that happen that are positive for God's people in this passage? And what are some things that are negative for God's people in this passage? They seem to exist side by side. As we trace through these, here's what you're going to find the first warning in the book of Judges for the reader this morning. The first warning is this. Broken faith begins with a trickle, not a gush. Broken faith begins with a trickle, not a gush. So what happens for Israel that's positive in this passage? Well, verse 1 starts off with a hugely successful moment. Joshua, the great leader, has died. That's not the successful thing. The successful, successful thing is this. Joshua has died, and in a moment of need, the people of Israel turn to God for direction. That's a huge thing in verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord. That's no small thing. Now, we just breeze past it like it was nothing, but it's a big deal that their first thought would be, we need to turn to Yahweh in order to get direction for what we're supposed to do next. That's a positive thing. In verses 3 through 11, the army of the tribe of Judah conquers multiple enemies, and they claim land all over the place. That's a positive thing. In verses 17 and 18, Judah has more military victories. In verse 19, another positive thing, we're told the Lord was with the men of Judah. Anytime we read and see God in action in any way in the passage, it's a big deal. For the Lord to be with the tribe of Judah in their military conquests, that's massive it's fulfillment of God's promise that goes all the way back to Abraham as we talked about just a moment ago. And then in verse 22, the Lord was with the tribes of Joseph when they attack the city of Bethel and take it. These are positive things. There's a lot of positive things. Another weird positive thing uh, that uh, we just kind of glossed over is Caleb, who at this point is very, very old, says, whoever defeats these bad guys over here, I'll reward them with my daughter. Othniel, who was lonely and would do anything for a woman, said, I'm the man for the task. And he routs the enemy and gets himself a woman. Here's the good thing. When God's people are walking in God's way, glory is found in the normal day-to-day things of life. People get married. People get land. People get water rights so they can farm and grow their own food and sustain themselves. This little boring part in the middle of chapter 1 where Othniel marries Aksa and Caleb gives them land and water rights, it's a big deal. It shows Israel settling into the land. This is their place and they're going to make a life there. Again, God's promise fulfilled to them. But side by side with all these positive things are these other situations that seem a bit sketchy. Things that would make us sort of scratch our heads. For example, in verse 6, the whole Adonai Bezek story is weird. They defeat this foreign king, and what's questionable is their choice then to cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now, Adonai Bezek, when he's telling the story, he says, This is God's right judgment on me. But when we read this story in light of the other commands that God has given Israel for how they are to handle their enemies, it seems weird. Now, we don't get any commentary from the writer. He doesn't say uh, the tribes of Judah sinned when they did this. He doesn't say that. It just leaves a bad taste in our mouth. It doesn't seem like what God's people ought to be doing. It seems more Canaanite than it does Israelite. Verse 19, another negative highlight It starts with something positive. The army of Judah has the Lord with them. The Lord is present with them. But then it says they're unable to drive these people from this area called the plains because they had iron chariots. What difference does it make what their iron or what their chariots are made out of if you have the Lord on your side? God's brought his people through far worse and against far greater enemies than these iron clad plainsmen. It shows that there's a crack in their faith, for sure. In verse 21, we're told that uh, the Benjamites, they did not drive this other group of people, the Jebusites, out of Jerusalem. They just let them hang there. This is bad news. And in verse 26, we get this weird story again about the defeat of a city called Luz. So it, if you remember your Old Testament history, it sounds kind of like the Jericho story all over again. the the army of God's people sneaks up on the city. They see one man who comes out. They say, hey, we'll make a deal. If you'll tell us how to get into the city, we'll let you live. The man says, all right, there's the secret passageway. Go for it. They ransack the city. The man lives. The man builds a new city, names it after the old city. Death to lose. Hey, look over here. Check this out. Hey, that's cool. Long live, lose. It's weird. It leaves us with a bad taste in our mouth. It's hard to define what's good, what's bad, how it all fleshes out in this story. I think it's summed up supremely in verse 19. God's with the tribe of Judah, but then they can't turn away the iron chariots. Look, Israel's small and repeated choices towards sin are precursors to their eventual full turn away from God. They don't just wake up overnight idolaters. Little choices along the way. There's successes along the way, but alongside those, these little choices towards sin, away from God, that spell their certain doom for sure. I read a story recently about a man in China who just a few months ago uh, walked past a poster that his government had put out warning people in village areas of old war explosives they might still come upon. And so I had pictures of these different war items, these different explosives, to help educate people about these things that might still be lying around. And on the poster was something he recognized. It's a grenade, and the grenade actually is shaped kind of like this microphone. It's got a handle. It's got sort of this bulbous end on it but where the explosives were kept. It's from World War I. And the reason the man recognized it was because he had the exact same thing in his kitchen at home, And for 25 years, he had been using it to crack walnuts. (laughs) Now, one moment you're cracking walnuts, the next moment you're cracked, right? Look, when we entertain sin, we welcome our destroyer. Our turn away from God doesn't happen in a moment. It's many repeated choices towards sin. It's choosing unholiness over holiness, disobedience over obedience. An affair begins with a harmless flirt. An addiction starts with just one pill to help you focus in this one time. The Apostle Paul, when he's warning God's people against anger and the sin that comes with it, he said in the book of Ephesians, do not give the devil a foothold. That's all he needs, just a foothold. And with little choices, we give foothold to our enemy who wants to devour us. The writer of the book of Judges warns us from the outset, a turn from God doesn't come with a, gosh, it starts with a trickle. It's all these little repeated choices that gradually turn us wholesale away from our God of grace. Now, I want us to continue reading in our passage, and we'll start in verse 27 as we take on this next section. And as I read from verse 27 to the end of the chapter, here's what I want you to keep an eye out for. I want you to listen for a repeated phrase. Let's see what repeated phrase jumps out at us as we read. So, Judges chapter 1, we're picking up in verse 27. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beit Shon or Tanakh or Dor or Iblim or Megiddo in their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalal, who remained among them, but they did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko, or Sidon, or Alab, or Achzeb, or Helba, or Aphek, or Rehob. And because of this, the people of Asher lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beit Shemesh, or Beit Anath. But the Naphtalites, too, lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. And those living in Beit Shemesh and Beit Anath became "'Forced laborers for them. "'The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, "'not allowing them to come down into the plain. "'And the Amorites were determined also to hold out "'in Mount Heres, Ajalon, and Shalbim. "'But when the power of the house of Joseph increased, "'they too were pressed into forced labor. "'The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass "'to Selah and beyond.'" We've got warnings from the writer of the book of Judges. The first warning is that a turn from God or broken faith starts with a trickle, not a gush. The second warning is this, failure can look like success. Failure can look like success. I asked you to listen for a repeated phrase as we read through that passage. Did you pick up on one? The repeated phrase, did not drive out. It shows up seven times in the passage we just read. Did not drive out, did not drive out, did not drive out. What was the alternative to driving out these peoples? The alternative was they turned them into slaves. They turned them into forced labor. Now, God's instructions is: people have been made abundantly clear. When they go to battle with the original inhabitants of the promised land called the Canaanites, in general they're called the Canaanites, they're to remove them from the land not make agreements or treaties with them, covenants with them. They are to remove them from the land altogether, a sort of scorched earth policy, if you will. And God has been explicit in this going all the way back to Exodus chapter 23. God said to his people in Exodus 23, do not let these people live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. So this is where you and I as modern readers may get upset with the word. Israel's mistake is that they let people live. That's what they did wrong. Now, to our modern Western sensibilities, that seems like a noble thing. And that even if God says, destroy them, and Israel disobeys by letting them live, our cultural values would say Israel chose right to disobey God. Who's God to get upset at these people who live in the land originally anyways? They're just innocent people living life, doing their own thing, thing, and then all of a sudden here comes this warring tribe of nomads with a bloodthirsty God. Who's God to destroy these innocent people? But here's the problem. If you and I think the Canaanites are innocent, we are profoundly mistaken. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 through 6 are, I think, some of the most important verses in the Old Testament for understanding this period of history of God's people. And Moses is talking in Deuteronomy chapter 9 to God's people and telling them about what it's going to be like when they step into the promised land. And he frames the whole conquest in this way. He tells them, After the Lord your God has driven these people out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel, you're not going to take this land because you're the best and they're the worst. You are God's tool of judgment against these idolatrous Canaanites. God's just judgment is being exacted on these people through you. Not because you're so righteous, but it's because they're so wicked and God is righteous. God calls the Canaanites wicked repeatedly. And they were. One glaring example of their wickedness was the worship of a false god named Molech. And here's how you, as a good Canaanite citizen, would worship Molech. You would go to a high place where you would find the altar to Molech, a statue sometimes covered in gold. And on top of the statue is the head of Molech. Where his belly should be is a fire. And you would approach the fire of Molech, and you would toss your baby in. You would walk away and go to your farm. The book of Leviticus repeatedly warns God's people do not let your children pass through the fires to Molech. They're not innocent people. God's ways may not always be palatable, but they are just. God knows that if the Canaanites are left in this land, then his people will be lost to their idols. And so this scorched earth policy is judgment for the Canaanites and protection for Israel. And Over and over, the writer tells us they did not drive out the people. This repetition is not just good storytelling. It is theological accusation. They have disobeyed God. They have defied Yahweh. They have made relationships with the Canaanites. They have not removed their gods. They have left the enemy among them. But alongside telling us these details, the writer also describes their military might. So here's, on on one hand, there's this uh, spiritual failure, but on the other hand, here's this increasing spiritual might or military might over and over. We're told how the armies of Israel get stronger. And they must have been strong to be able to defeat these enemy nations and then to enslave them. So the narrative from an Israelite soldier perspective would sound compelling. It would go something like this. We have defeated the enemy from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River, north and south. We have taken the whole land. Our enemy grows stronger with every battle We have defeated enemies with superior firepower. We have put them to the sword. We have uh, subjected them to slavery. And now we, the former slaves, are slaveholders. It would sound like might. It would look like success to outside eyes. But the lesson to us is clear. It's possible for believers to have great success in life and yet, be total failures in the eyes of God. If a survey were taken of people who know you, what would they say about you? They might praise your accomplishments, they might praise your generosity, they might praise your great personality, they might talk about your commitment to South Shore Baptist Church and say it's an honorable commitment. That person prays with such eloquence and sincerity. That person is in church every Sunday except for the summer. And that person serves on various committees, and they serve faithfully. Outwardly, all the signs of success. But if we were to ask God, God, what of this man, what of this woman might he say? On Sundays, I have him, but every other day, he belongs to Molech. Outward success is no sure sign of spiritual success. Success in the Christian life rises and falls on obedience. When you obey the word of the Lord in small things and in big things, you will be the right kind of successful success for the Christian is never measured by peripheral items remember we follow a savior who was stripped of everything and hung naked on a cross in front of his mother he had nothing to his name at his death yet he fulfilled the will of the father success for the Christian is found in obedience not in peripheral items so here's a warning to us. Failure can look like, look like success. Do not settle for broken hearts, but a f- successful-looking exterior. So chapter 1 opens with these warnings. We've got Israel on the downhill slide. Little turns from God turn to an all-out rebellion against God. And what happens next? I want you to read with me our last section, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. There will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. Now, when the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. We've got three warnings as we dive into Judges. Broken faith begins with a trickle, not a gush. Failure can look like success. Third, discipline is God's grace. Not a traditional warning, but wisdom nonetheless. Discipline is God's grace to the sinner. So the angel of the Lord comes up from Gilgal to Bochim. Sometimes the Bible gives us wonderful commentary just through geographical markers. Bochim, what does Bochim mean? Well, verses 4 and 5 tell us it's a place of weeping. That's what it becomes through this story. So when we think of the location Bochim, we think of weeping, especially a weeping over sin. The angel starts at Gilgal. What's Gilgal? You could look through your Bible, flip back, and you'll see that Gilgal is the place where the Israelites first set up camp after crossing the Jordan River. Miraculous Crossing, they're in the promised land. The first place they set up camp is in Gilgal. And Gilgal is a place where they renew their covenant with Yahweh, where they establish the covenant symbol once again and remove their sinful shame. It's their first steps into the promised land. So the angel of the Lord coming from Gilgal to Bochim tells the reader this, God's coming, pursuing his people from the place where their sin was removed to the place where their sin will be judged, from a place of rejoicing to a place of weeping. What a sad trajectory God's people have walked on. And why is God angry with Israel? In verse 2, he makes the accusation clear. You've made covenants with the people of this land. You did not tear down the altars to their gods. Oh, there's the altar to Molech. Fires burning bright. Leave it there. Their people are our slaves. This will help them obey us better if they can still access their false god. So you made covenants with the people. You've left their altars intact. And look, I promised you. Here's what God says. I promised you. I would bring you into this land. I swore this land to your forefathers all the way back to Abraham. But now, here you are defying me. And why would you do that? Now, you may be thinking, Man, this is bad for Israel. This is so bad. God's so angry at them, so upset. This is, this is really a terrible situation for them. But look, this is no raw deal for Israel. God does not owe them this conversation. If God wants, he can just rain down a little fire, vaporize the whole group, and just go on with someone else. But here, in the opening to this hard book. We see a God who is full of grace. God's discipline is God's grace to his sinful children. There's a difference between discipline and punishment, right? We don't think of discipline as grace so much, but there's a difference between the two, discipline and punishment. Discipline is God's way of turning us back to him. Punishment is God's way of leaving us in our sin. God disciplines those he loves so when he sees israel thrown headlong into their sin the god who loves them acts in discipline for their good to restore their relationship with him and who wouldn't want a god like that who is patient and gracious with his sinful people God makes it clear things are going to be easy for you going forward. But he also makes it clear, I'm still with you going forward. Here's how we set things right. Now, the people of Israel, in response to God, they, they weep. They, they make sacrifices. Are they truly remorseful? Remorseful, I would say yes. Repentant, not so much. They fall short of repentance here. And they begin this vicious cycle that goes on throughout the entire book. But with every act of sin, every display of brokenness, God moves in favor of his people. And sometimes that move is a hard move. It's an enemy nation. It's a time of national turmoil. But God's actions are always for the sake of turning his people back to him. God's in a tough situation here in chapter 2. I said I would give you this land, yet you have broken your covenant with me and made covenants with these other people. What am I supposed to do? It's a question that remains unresolved for some time, not just through the book of Judges, but throughout the entire Old Testament. And the answer to that question ultimately is found on Easter Sunday. How does God bless and forgive and save and rescue people who are sinful through and through, people like you and I, people who cannot obey, people who will fail repeatedly, people who do not keep the promises we want to keep? How does God save someone like me, someone like you? He does it by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, comes to us and the punishment that we deserve is laid on Him at the cross. As we read through Judges, the cross of Jesus is in full view to your benefit time and time again. We we have to read Judges remembering Easter, that God sent the Son, the Son laid down His life, took the punishment that your sin deserves so that you could receive the blessing, the salvation, the forgiveness that God desires to give you. And his promise to you is this, if you will live a perfect life, you'll be saved. Is that how the promise goes? No, because you're not going to cut it. He promises you this, if you do more good than bad, you'll be saved. Is that what the promise is? No, because you've already failed that test. Here's what he says. If you will turn from your sin, and if you will put your faith in the one who died in your place, you will be saved. You will. You will. Not through any work of your own, only through the work of Jesus Christ, God the Son, who laid down his life and rose again, and in him we have eternal life. Here's the God of grace who will not leave his people in their sin. God is faithful to his covenant even when we are not disciplined is God's good grace to us. It could be that today this hard word from the Lord is the gracious word, calling you to return to the God of God. Who keeps his promises. So, we've covered a lot of ground this morning. I'm very proud of you for hanging in here with me. I know it's been a lot a lot of names, a lot of tribes, a lot of warfare, a lot of things happening. But I don't want us to get lost in the weeds here. I want to make sure that we keep proper perspective of what the writer of Judges is trying to accomplish in our lives. He's given us these warnings that apostasy or idolatry, it begins with a trickle. Success can look like failure. God's discipline is His beautiful grace to us. It can be hard at times for us to understand God's love to us. I read a story recently about a man named Samuel Forrest. Samuel's originally from New Zealand. He married a woman who's from Armenia and was living with his wife in Armenia. And last year, Samuel's wife gave birth to a baby boy. Everyone was rejoicing at this, happy about it, until they discovered after the child's birth that the baby, named Leo, uh, was diagnosed with Down syndrome. Now, to Samuel, it was sad news, but it was by no means the end. However, his wife and her family felt very different. In Armenian culture, birth defects bring shame on a family, and children like Leo are sent almost automatically Uh, to squalid orphanages. So Samuel's wife made her position clear. If he chose to keep the baby, she would divorce him. Samuel made his position clear. He was not giving up this baby, and he pleaded with his wife to reconsider. But she would not look at or touch the baby for fear of connecting with the child And a week after giving birth to Leo, she filed for divorce from Samuel, and then Samuel returned to his native New Zealand with Leo, where he's raising him as a single dad today. Here's the question. Who shows God-like love in this story? Is it the mom who says, your imperfections are repulsive to me, or is it the dad who says, I will love you no matter what? I don't want to give away the end of the book of Judges, but God does not give up on his people, and he has not given up on you. And God's answer for you is not merely that you would just try better, do more, do gooder. That's not God's answer. God's answer is trust in me. Let me rescue you. Let me save you, because you're going to fall down time and time again. Trust in my son. Call on his name. You'll be saved, and I'll carry you through all the way to the very end. In the face of every hard chapter of Judges, we find a God whose extravagant love through Jesus will rescue us from the scourge of sin. So it's my hope today that the realization of our sin will lead us to the experience of God's grace. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I'm so grateful for passages of scripture that make us squirm. And we're going to be in a lot of those in the coming weeks. I'm grateful for passages that confront us with our brokenness and at the same time exalt you as the one who is gracious, a savior, a rescuer. But Lord let us not gloss over the warning this morning and rush to the grace. Lord let us feel the weight of the fate of those who never trust you, who never turn to you, who don't call on you for salvation, who rest in their own gods. Lord, let us not be so easily convinced of our own spiritual success, but Lord, let us evaluate our hearts in honesty and fairness this morning. I'm grateful that regardless of how wicked we are by comparison to others, your promise to us is true, that you will save all those that come to you, bring forgiveness and new life. God, let that happen today even. And I'm grateful that for your children who strive and yet fail and who sometimes fail horribly, Lord, you don't give up on them, but you'll clean us and you'll set us on a new path. And Lord, I know I've got brothers and sisters in here this morning that need that new start. So, Lord, thank you for the grace heard in these warnings from the people in our past. And thank you especially for the portrait of a God of grace who calls us to your side. Lord, may we come to you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.